0: head to airbnb.com slash host. Hi,
1: Elise Lunen here, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop Podcast. Today, I'm talking to Elaine Welteroth. She's the next guest in our special series that we're hosting in partnership with Banana Republic called Women on Top. I'll tell you a little more about that before we get to our conversation. Some of the most interesting businesses, or maybe all of the most interesting businesses, were born out of curiosity, a desire to explore, to ask questions and share answers. This is the space that Gwyneth was in when she started Goop. It's also the space from which Banana Republic was founded back in 1978, when two California creatives with adventurous spirits began upcycling military surplus clothing. And the rest was history. When we talked to the team at Banana Republic about partnering up on a special podcast series, their vision revolved around the idea of living a life with no boundaries. This is the inspiration behind their clothing today. It drives how they source premium materials from around the world, the ways they choose to innovate with their designs, and how they think about infusing style with substance. This is all on display in their fall collection, which combines iconic Banana Republic styles with a modern twist. To see it all and to shop Banana Republic's ball collection, head to bananarepublic.com slash goop.
0: Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go.
1: For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless. But we will use words to limit ourselves.
0: When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered.
2: Courageous participation attracts positive things.
0: I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is The Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Elaine Welteroth is a
1: journalist, editor, and New York Times bestselling author of More Than Enough. Elaine and I both grew up at Conde Nast, although we worked there at different times. Elaine was named editor in chief of Teen Vogue when she was just 29 making her the youngest to hold the title in Condé Nast history. Today, Elaine and I talk about starting conversations about race, white privilege, colorism, and diversity, and why it's so important we get these topics out in the open. Elaine shares how growing up multiracial has shaped who she is and led her to the actualization of her dreams. We talk about Elaine's spirituality and why she considers herself to be a vessel. And then we talk about strength and resiliency. Elaine tells us about how the darker moments in her life have humbled her and how she's learned that she can survive anything.
2: We all have to bump into the walls before we find the light. We all have to struggle. We all have to feel lost before we're found. We all have to learn what we don't want before we can recognize
1: what we do want. Okay, let's get to my chat with Elaine Walteroth. I know within within the book you talk about sort of that moment of or maybe I was actually reading your acknowledgments and sort of like the cattle prod of writing a book did you always want to do it or was there a moment or did you feel like you'd lived enough life to do it or were you always waiting to sort of for the ultimate push No it's not some, it was a very organic process
2: it's not something that I necessarily set out to do definitely didn't set out to do it at this stage of my life it just kind of it it the opportunity found me and kind of all the stars lined up such that it would be silly to not to not do it and and I also felt like the book had already been written inside of me in a way. It wasn't something that I was like striving to do. But when that when everything came together, I, it was something that was so natural. And there was I knew the ex- I knew the exact stories that I needed to tell. I, I knew the conversations that I wanted to start. I had such a clear vision for it that it was just like it was almost like inertia. You know, mm-hmm. I, it, would, it would have
1: been more unnatural to not do it than to do it, if that makes sense. Yeah reading it, it feels sort of deeply unlabored. And I know you're a prolific writer, and you come by words naturally, but it does. It feels there are parts of it that were deeply familiar, even though I'm older than you, and I'm not multiracial, but I grew up in Condé Nast as well. And and then you the, did, I did. I was a long time. I was that lucky for probably close to the first 10 years then I went to traveler before I moved to Los Angeles. So I remember those days. I guess it would have been it was was before you, but and I remember sort of I was actually just having my brother's a book editor and we were having this conversation last week about the problem of media and I know you talk about sort of how we need different storytellers if we're going to change the story, but the pay and just sort of the comp- how how people are compensated there, and how it is such a limiting factor for anyone who doesn't come from money to work in media and be those people who are telling different stories. So very fam- like many parts of your book are very familiar, as well as the fact that I feel like you really definitely layer in. I know you you seem like a very spiritual or religious person, but sort of the universal forces that sort of dragged you along at various points. How would you describe your
2: spirituality? I'm a prayerful person. I, I, I was raised by a, a praying black woman, and I grew up in the black church, the Baptist church. And But my dad is Catholic, and so I kind of was exposed to Catholicism from a young age as well. And I think what I've come away with is just that you have to cultivate your own individual personal relationship with the higher power, whatever you call it, however you interact with it. And, and it, the more you can access that power and, and feel that sense, that sense of connectedness to it, I think the more meaningful life is and the more peace you you. Experience as you move through the world.
1: Yeah, I mean, because when you when you read your book, it's and you sort of lay out the. It seems like you. It's outlined by these moments of extreme faith, or being picked, right, mm-hmm. or knowing that you're going to represent like you're through a filter of beauty. I know for a, a, the first section of your career, but that your job was clear, like that you had a some sort of sacred mission or calling that you were sort of throwing your back into, but that was defined. And do you feel like in the, in those moments, it seems like in those moments you knew that, or is it one of those things like in mm-hmm. retrospect, like it, it sort of mm-hmm. lines up like, the, like a spine?
2: No, I think you know it's a God thing when it's happening. And I was very aware of the divine intervention the the many points in my my journey that I that I experienced divine intervention I recognized it I was humbled by it in the moment and I felt like writing this book was more than a I I actually don't even identify with the term memoir I don't I don't think of this as a memoir if anything I think of it as a testimony to all of those moments even a, a claim or or like praise or any of that i it it literally rolls off me because i really don't think that anything that has happened to me or anything that i've done is ever about me or because of me like i really really recognize that i am a vessel and purpose i rarely by the way i rarely talk about spirituality in public spaces because it is so personal for me and it is something that's not necessarily for public consumption or to be you know picked apart or questioned or like it's usually never something that's open for discussion but in this book there was no way for me to tell my story without honoring the my creator and 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 the reason for everything that has happened to me for me through me You know, so it was kind of my first time sharing in a public way a little bit more about my relationship with God and the divine power, uh, you know, whatever, whatever it is that you want to call it. But those, but yes, every, every, what I call in the book, God thing that happened was something that was so awe inspiring to me in the moment that it humbled me, it, it, it was like miraculous to me in the moment it felt like a little miracle and i remember those moments i collected those little moments and they they were all worthy of sharing and i think important to share cuz i do think it reminds it reminds hopefully the reader to identify those those god moments in their life and those moments where it's nothing but god mm-hmm. <laughs> that got you there or it's nothing but divine intervention that can explain kind of like these, these radical breakthrough moments in your life, or even, even the, even the moments that bring you to your knees, like so often are the moments that serve you in the biggest ways. I remember my, my biggest breakup, my most like heartbreaking breakup that I wrote about in the book with future husband, yeah, um, who shall not be named, who <laughs> shall not be named by name, but that breakup brought me to my knees and humbled me in a way that honestly brought me so much closer to God and helped me see God's hand move in my life in a way that like, it's just, it it changes you forever and for the better. And it taught me to trust the timing of my life. It taught me to trust that inner voice. It taught me what love really feels like and what it doesn't feel like. And, and also I think for any woman who's ever bounced back from heartbreak or from anything that's humbled you and brought you to your knees, I feel like it, it, it builds a strength in your core such that, you know, you can survive anything and like, and thrive through any, after any challenge and, and, so it just made me such a, a much more resilient and and faithful person kind of going through those harder yeah. points and i i just feel like when when women tell their stories like when particularly you know quote unquote successful women often leave those humbling moments out of their success stories and i wish we wouldn't i wish we would would keep those in because i do think those are the most universal and the most and and the things that help other people see the light at the end of the tunnel if if they you know when they find themselves in those kind of dark humbling moments in their lives but yeah
1: I completely relate I think you just called yourself a vessel I often call myself a channel just I you know Mm -hmm. and I think, think it's a moment I work incredibly hard and I don't know maybe it's that curiosity that defines people who get into media and journalism I push and I ask questions but I also feel like There's a a great relief and also that acknowledgement of, like, it's not me. It's not not an ego thing. I'm just listening, right, or tapping into something that also I think is powerful for anyone who reads because it's accessible to everyone who sort of tunes in and pays attention. I love that moment. Well, I know it was a horrible moment in your life, but where, you know, you have reason to believe that your ex-future husband... And isn't, you know, I know you'd received a terrible email with all sorts of claims. And then you sort of ask, like, just, I know I'll be shown the truth. And it emerges, mm-hmm. which I think mm-hmm. is, you know, great faith. The one thing, and I and I actually, it's funny hearing you say this, because I feel like you'd probably agree with me. But there are moments, and I think whenever you write something like this, it's like, let me tell you what happened to me so you don't make the same mistakes. Right. But in reading your book, I made many of the same mistakes, particularly mm-hmm. in love. And although I didn't my first boyfriend was not in jail, but everyone I think has to do that. You know, like there's no skipping over right horrible decisions.
2: And but you can cycle through them faster, I think, with yeah. when when you have when you have a barometer for what is healthy and what is unhealthy which I think you can learn from other people's experiences, it, it helps you. I, I think it could help you cycle through things faster. Like if I knew for sure, when my mom said to me after that breakup, after the second breakup, never call him again. That yeah. is not what love feels. That's not what love looks like. I Literally, literally that is, it, it was like a, the light bulb went on and I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. I will never call him again. Like sometimes you just need someone to turn the light on to help you see what is, has always been there, but that you couldn't see on your own. So yeah, I hope, but I hear you. I hear you. We all have to, we all have to bump into the walls before we find the light. We all have to struggle. We all have to feel lost before we're found. We all have to learn what we don't want before we can recognize what we do want, you know? Yeah. And there is no fast track through... through the struggle of, it, of of that journey that is life, like right. you know? But I think you can feel less alone, less isolated going through it yeah. when other women are brave enough to share those parts
1: well, of and their I, stories. And I would maintain that it's incredibly powerful to see someone like you who is incredibly powerful and very outspoken about what is right and wrong and appropriate and not appropriate, particularly in, in this moment in time when people are a little lost to say... Look, like, you know, I I personally dated someone who I would say is probably a malignant narcissist, maybe a psychopath. Mm-hmm. But sometimes when you share that, I think you you acknowledge that you feel like you were sort of skating along around the edges of what would be categorized as abuse, right? That sort mm-hmm. of insidious belittling of, of mm-hmm. emotional abuse. And I think when, when people read this and are like, wow, Elaine managed you know did that mm-hmm. for 3 years i think there's a lot of power in that as well since i think yeah so many of us are like how did that happen to me like i don't under mm. <laughs> i thought i was mm-hmm. above that or or strong enough to i never thought that would be me um, yeah, absolutely yeah there's so much
2: shame in in it when especially when you're experiencing the kind of abuse that doesn't come with bruises and scars it's invisible to the to the eye and and it often goes undiagnosed, unnamed and it also often comes with a lot of gaslighting so you're just not even sure what's happening to you as it's happening and yeah i'm i'm grateful that i am in a position to look back and and see the ways in which i was able to just save my life and not in a not in a literal way but like i I, if I think of the person that I was then and who I would have become if I k- stayed on that path, I never would have actualized the dreams that I've been able to live since then, you totally. know? And so, and yeah, you, to the extent, th- oh, go ahead. Mm-hmm.
1: No, I was going to say, and you'd probably also have a different point of view on people who find themselves victims, right? Like, I think it creates mm-hmm. a lot of empathy. You know, I remember it's, and it's subtle. I think you've said it's gaslighting with a certain ex-boyfriend who won't be named. I remember early on in our relationship being at a dinner party with some – I was younger than he was, and everyone was very glamorous in media. And he turned to me at dinner and said, how does it feel to be the ugliest person here? And Uh I was like, whoa. And then after, I tried to, like, quasi-confront him, and he was like, well, obviously I wouldn't date you if I thought you were ugly. I was like, okay. But it's those moments, and then you allow it again, and then it gets worse, and suddenly – you're on the on the floor in terms of your self esteem, but I don't think if that had if that hadn't happened to me, I don't think I would have the same level of empathy for right. what happens to women all the time and men.
2: Mm hmm. hundred percent. And it and it goes. Yeah. I mean, I think in even this idea that you can be promoted above certain universal experiences that women go through or women of color go through is just it's a fallacy. Mm -hmm. And I and I and I did not want to be as I never want to be a symbol for an untruth, you know, like I I don't want to be held up as someone who is like above being, you know, mistreated by A man or above being you know accosted by a tsa officer who just sees me as a black woman and Mm -hmm. treats me the way sometimes black women get treated in this country regardless of the fact that you know i I lead an organization for you know you know within an organization like condé nas like it doesn't matter It it doesn't it does not mean that i don't experience racism sexism ageism like we there's th- until we fix those systemic problems no one is immune mm-hmm. to them and i and i and i um i do think that like we have to kind of like destigmatize those conversations so that women don't feel shame in sharing their stories because it connects us it, it connects us all and i think the more that we talk about it, the more we name it the more we are able to kind of rise above it when we're experiencing it and hopefully again like i said cycle through those kinds of abuses qu- more quickly yeah. Um, because we can name it, you know, we can name it. Totally. And say like, and say no and say, and, and say like that, you know, and, and also be able to seek help as well when you're in it. It took me a long time to even admit, to even say out loud, like what
1: was actually happening. Yeah. Cause it's embarrassing. Yeah. I mean, there's so much shame mm-hmm. and, and you all, and it's com- obviously coupled with sadness, you know, and loss and mm-hmm. And fear and, uh, you know, a debilitated sense of self, which is the most grievous crime, I think.
0: Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica— If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop List, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, You know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Mm
1: -hmm. We'll get back to Elaine Welteroth in just a second. I mentioned a few weeks ago on the podcast that curiosity is my favorite state of being. I try to carry that attitude with me every day, and it's certainly easier to do it at a place like Goop that places such a premium value on being curious and feeling empowered to explore and ask questions. Banana Republic is another company that values curiosity. Their founding story starts with a California couple who's looking for an adventure. Fun fact, Banana Republic began as a safari-inspired clothing company. And today, the inspiration for their clothing is designing for a life in motion, or as they put it, living a life of possibilities with no boundaries. Their fall collection is iconic Banana Republic, styled for now. So there are utility-inspired styles made from premium materials, think your favorite dresses and pants updated in animal prints and menswear patterns, and quintessential suede jackets and cashmere sweaters that you'll wear for many seasons to come. And now, Banana Republic is celebrating some true modern icons with goop, through our special podcast series, Women on Top. I hope you'll listen to every episode. These are the women who lead with power, grace, and curiosity, who I think define what it means to break boundaries, and maybe most importantly, who are working hard so that others too can live a life of possibilities. So keep listening and keep shopping with our friends at Banana Republic. To get their fall collection, head to bananarepublic.com slash goop. It's that time of the year again. We're celebrating one of our favorite holidays on Saturday, November 16th. It's called InGoop Health. And for the first time, we'll be up north around San Francisco. If you're not familiar with InGoop Health, it's our Super Bowl version of a wellness summit. Gwyneth and I will be hosting a series of talks and panels with incredible thought leaders, and there are many more extraordinary practitioners, teachers, and culture changers leading classes and workshops. We'll be covering a lot of ground, physically and metaphorically, We'll learn about intimacy, the power of connection, fasting, tools for reducing stress, and how to quiet our inner critics. We'll be joined by some of the people I admire most, like psychotherapist and psychological astrologer Jennifer Freed and psychiatrist Will Sue, who are teaching a joint workshop on manifesting your authentic self. Wall Street legend Sally Krawcheck will be leading a masterclass on money. Judy White is teaching a workshop on what dreams really mean. Walter Longo is giving us his longevity secrets. And you'll get to bounce on a mini trampoline with Lauren Roxborough, which is coincidentally my favorite pastime. And because it's Goop, you can also expect B12 shots galore, amazing food and drinks, and some surprises along the way. If you've been to an InGoop Health before, I hope you'll be back. And if this is your first time, I can't wait to meet you. The summit is on Saturday, November 16th, and you can get tickets now at goop.com InGoopHealth. Back to my chat with Elaine Welteroth. So I know, you know, at Teen Vogue, you sort of, you created an entirely new conversation in this country at a time of, you know, definitely, you know, in 2016, right? The most, one of the darkest years probably in our respective lives about representation, diversity, white privilege, colorism, and the Mm -hmm. whole gamut. I think the fact that, you know, as a white woman, I know, I know what colorism is and I understand white privilege and the centering of the white experience and systemic white supremacy. Like, I feel like there's definitely progress that's been made. Do you feel that way or are you still sort of dismayed by where we are culturally in our conversations about race? I think we have a long way to go and I think that, I think we're in a stage of
2: reckoning and we're starting to acknowledge where we where we've fallen short and we were starting to f- shine lights on our b- collective blind spots but I think it's just the beginning of a long road of healing and I think it depends on who I'm talking to sort of if I'm heartened or dismayed like uh, in terms right. of you know the question about how progress I'm in a kind of a privileged position now to to be able to choose who I will work with and, and the kinds of people that I want to collaborate with. And I feel like I've built a life where I am in a little bit of a bubble where people care about these things and they they we are we are actively having courageous conversations and we are checking our privilege. But even that is privilege. That is privilege, you know, to to live in a world where people are all talking about this, where we are where we know what this we're using this language even, you know. Yeah. I my mother just for just in contrast, my mother who is a black woman from a different era is like what is cultural appropriation girl we don't we didn't have time to worry about that we were trying to keep our jobs you know we were trying to get a job and keep a job right (laughs) like you better get out of here with this cultural appropriation nonsense these are like champagne problems for our ancestors you know what i mean (laughs) like so so i do acknowledge that we've come a long way to even be having these like philosophical and and you know intellectual conversations about systemic oppression and representation and cultural appropriation. But like at the same time, we we have a responsibility to our ancestors to push these conversations forward and to make sure that it, it it's not just lip service. You know, and that we are all—it's like I wrote about this in the book, just this concept of woke, which is so played out now and so corny, and as a you know, just the term itself. But like, I think that a lot of people think woke works like a a light switch. Right. Like you just you, now you're woke. Here we're all woke, and, and 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 we're good. We've arrived, and it's like no, it it, it being woke, quote unquote, is a process of awakening that never ends and we all need to engage in this constant reevaluation and 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 like you know education and discourse and it's it's there's always more to learn and there's always more to do and it can feel exhausting to be in a world like ours where it just feels like the sky is falling all the time and every, you know, for every two steps forward there's three steps back and and it also feels like even if you're doing the work you're on there's this whole dark force working against you on the other side. I mean, it's a it, we're living in really interesting times. I would say I think I think that while while it's really kind of depressing and through one lens, through another lens, it's also I don't think there's ever been in my lifetime a better time or more, or more exhilarating up time to be to be a woman, mm-hmm. to be alive, to be, you know, to, to be a woman of color. It's like there's there's an opening in the matrix where we are finally accessing our power and our voices in a way that we haven't certainly in my lifetime, but I would say for generations lifetimes, maybe, maybe ever. (laughs) We're working together in ways that we have, that I haven't seen us work together before to affect change. And, but I think a lot hinges on this next election. Um, and I feel, I feel the weight of that. I mean, do do you?
1: Yes. I mean, I feel frantic about it. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of perverse beauty, I think that's come in the last four years or three years and that I feel like it has brought you know people out and a lot of these things that we thought were solved I think you talk about this a fair amount in the book but like this progressive you know once Barack Obama was elected president it was like we're done Mm -hmm. like we're good here I think you talk about it in the context of Essence and Ebony like people's point of view that why why would we even need black magazines right Mm -hmm. but so I feel like I there's no point, I think you've acknowledged this too, there's no point where you're done, right? Like there's, regardless of of who's elected, and hopefully it is someone far kinder, we are not done. And, you know, I think one of my favorite quotes in the book, which I think is a really interesting paradox, is you say, women aren't taught to get comfortable with making people uncomfortable, which I think is... Very profound. And I would also add that women are also used to being uncomfortable, so
2: mm-hmm. absorbing it, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. so we're in I think we are the ones who need to lead so long as we can sort of shift into this place of of grace, of feeling feeling comfortable, having hard conversations and navigating them with curiosity and and occasionally offending and stepping in it, but trying to get back to a place of grace and I put a lot of my faith there in sort of open conversations where mm-hmm. I think women are more adapted, not shutting each other down as we try to figure out sort of mm-hmm. how we, how we keep going and how we go forward. Mm-hmm. I'm heartened by just this again. And
2: I, I, I know we, we you and I live in a bubble. We do, <laughs> but at least within our bubble, which I think is expanding. (laughs) There is a genuine desire to do better. Yeah. And that isn't something I have seen quite like this in my lifetime. And and I'm really heartened by that. You know, I had a conversation with one of my former bosses yesterday and she just she told me that she read my book and that she learned a lot Mm -hmm. about you know her own blind spots and looking back on her career and the kind of culture that she fostered and what she would do differently now and 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 she had to reckon you know reconcile with some of that stuff her, herself and she thanked me for being so candid and like even that moment I'm like this is yeah <laughs> this is ex- I mean wh- who gets this opportunity this yeah. is this is this is beyond revelatory. This is, this, I mean, this is extremely productive and healing and I don't know. It's, it's, so I, those are the moments that I live for. I mean, yeah. even, even in writing the book, there were so many moments where I learned about blind spots that I had. And I, and like, for instance, when I wrote about my time at Glamour, I reached out to an old colleague of mine just to, you know, share with her what I had, Plan to write that involved her in some way to make sure to clear it by her. And it led to this whole conversation about her experience of that time, which completely surprised me and ended up enriching my book because I was able to share her perspective on the same situation. And and it made me realize that no matter what kind of privilege we're all walking around with. And by the way, we all are walking around with some measure of privilege. It just might look different. But she, we're all, we're all struggling with that feeling of not measuring up and not, not being good enough, not being skinny enough, pretty enough, successful enough, you know, worthy enough, woke enough, you know, like mm-hmm. we all are so like encumbered by our own. We're also, we're so, uh, caught up i guess in our own sense of not belonging or not being enough that we aren't even recognizing that we're all in it together and yeah. actually we, we can sort of when we when we're vulner- vulnerable enough to share that we it, we realize we have so much more in common than not and in this case it was like you know i was sharing the the i was sharing from the position of you know being the token black girl in this pretty much all white office and how much of a culture shock that was for me coming from an all black magazine and the kinds of experiences that I had, you know, being mistaken for the only other black girl on staff who looked nothing like me and, you know, things like that. And then she expressed to me, you know, being, you know, it's certainly not even plus size but not sample size she felt like i was given certain opportunities that she was passed over for she you know so she was calling out some measure of pretty privilege that i was enjoying mm-hmm. and and completely unaware of completely unconscious to the, the about the ways in which that made her feel less than or, and and she actually left the organization because it be kind of it kind of made her feel like there was a ceiling to how f- how far she could go because she maybe wasn't the model of of you know she wasn't the public facing model of what someone yeah. from this organization looks like and it just had never occurred to me that this white girl with blonde hair who i thought fit in perfectly to that culture also felt in some ways othered yeah and inferior and I just thought, damn it! Why did it take us ten years to have this conversation? I know, <laughs> you know. So, so it just spoke to just how universal these themes are that I was writing about, even more so than I even I think realized when I first set out on this this mission of writing a book called More Than Enough. You know, yeah. I had in, in my mind that this is predominantly for people of color, young girls of color, and really, I think I think it's much broader actually yeah. in its in its resonance than that.
1: Totally. I mean, just think of the sample sizes on those racks in the fashion closet. And I remember, you mm-hmm. know, not really being able to wear sample sizes. And I remember cover stars who needed a tailor and how that would create tears and anxiety. And, mm-hmm. you know, the whole and that whole industry is, is totally fraught. And, you know, I think, going back even to an, an earlier point about you know, leaning into having an expanded conversation about being enough and what that means and all of its different permutations. And this idea that like we don't honor difference, right? And we've been sort of raised in this world, which, you know, I love the moment too, where you're educating, I think it was at Teen Vogue, or I don't know if it was Glamour or Teen Vogue, where you're like, it's black like I'm black you can say I'm black but how much you don't have to whisper it guys it's not a bad
2: word it's 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 not a diss and the fact that you're whispering it like it's a bad word now now I do feel diss. yeah (laughs) no exactly
1: and are just you know you talk you you watch white people in particular and they'll do anything in describing a black person except say oh you know the black woman it's She's Mm -hmm. wearing a um, pink dress Mm -hmm. and to the point of complete confusion, right? But I feel like it's even that is so uncomfortable for us because we've been Mm -hmm. raised with this idea of like race doesn't matter and we're all the same. And that is clearly not until we start honoring all of our differences, whether it's race or size or age or ability or all of our, the, the facets that make us human, we're just having really weird conversations that are deeply mm-hmm. un- uncomfortable. And I think it's, mm-hmm. a, you know, I know it's not your job to educate the world, but someone has to do it, you know, in a way. It's unfortunate, but it's true. I found
2: that the most inviting way, or, or like the most productive way of inviting everyone into these kinds of courageous conversations is through storytelling, like through this, the simple anecdotes that really break down these bigger issues, these complex, layered, controversial topics that feel too heady or too scary for lots of us. You know, to, I think when you break it down in a simple story – That is just human that that anyone can relate to. I think it's I think it's a really it's like an open invitation for understanding. And I think when you can start from a place of understanding and humanity, then you can see your way into the issue like you can. I think that like no one wants to feel like they're a part of the problem, but until they can see themselves as part of the problem, they can't be part of the solution, you totally. know? So like, for instance, talking about privilege is something that's really hard for a lot of white people. And I think until you are shown what that actually means and, and, and when someone, until someone can define it for you in really simple terms, which I define it as, you know, dis not having to see discrimination that does not directly affect you. Like that is privilege. And I think for example, like that white paper family story that I share, Mm -hmm. it's it, you know, being a, being a preschooler at a white school and being told to make a family collage but being handed magazines filled with white people and like how disorienting that was for me at 3 years old and like so disorienting in fact that it was the, my very first memory and really it's a memory of being othered for the first time and feeling like I didn't belong and feeling less than because I didn't see myself reflected and really it speaks to the directly to the heart of why representation matters mm-hmm. and it it adds it adds a human element and a deeper understanding of why the hell representation matters cuz right now it's like we we talk about it so much and and we have a hashtag for it that it's almost be- i think we've become numb mm-hmm. a little bit but when you can like put yourself in or see your daughter in that in that story it's like oh it sears your heart in a way that i, I that i hashtag cannot you know and (laughs) and you're like damn I never thought about that if you're a white person who has been raised your whole life to see and seeing yourself in magazines and on covers and seeing dolls that look like you and you've just never had to be conscious of of a world in which that's not the reality for you when someone can help you see that other side it just makes you more empathetic and it makes you see the world in a new way and and I, that was really my hope for for the book and telling these kinds of stories. You know, we're talking about what it was like. You know, f- f- to ha- to grow up in a white neighborhood with amazing best friends who were all white, and 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 not realizing that, you know, and being one of those people who's like, we don't see race until right. one of my very best friends in the world used the N word in my presence, and and what that felt like. And I feel I, I feel like whether you have been that girl who's been. You know, on who's used that word and who's felt that shame, or you're the woman who who you're the girl who's been the only one in the room, like it brings us all together because we can we can see ourselves in that story, you know, so I don't know. I just found it to be i I've always believed as a journalist and as a storyteller that stories and sharing our stories has so much power especially in moments like this where we are so divided. I think storytelling is the way to bring people together. It is, and honestly has the power to change hearts and minds in moments when we really need that. And so this is for me, a form of activism in a subtle way, you know, it's kind of like, it's like undercover activism in a way. And I think it hopefully it reminds people that they you don't have to call yourself an activist, but you can be an activist in your own way, in your own style from wherever you are. And sometimes even just participating in listening to these kinds of stories is opening yourself up to a heart change. And I think we all need we all need we need more moments that change our perspective and that open up our hearts right now, because there's a lot of. There's a lot that is threatening to keep us cold and to keep us shut off from each other right now.
1: Thanks for listening to my conversation with Elaine Waltroth. Make sure to grab a copy of her new book, More Than Enough, out now. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back this Thursday for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.